stay hungry, stay foolish. I'm so happy to bring you a multiple part series, this time with Jeffrey West, the author of Scale. It is a fascinating, fascinating book. I've learned so much from it. Look at the detail in that book. And he simplifies the information. And I had to read some chapters twice. It's a magnificent episode, multi-part series that is part of the exponential series because it ties to so much of what we talked to in that series. And it is a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to thank our sponsor, Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded finance products and services, empowering businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and to move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. Let's get into episode one of this magnificent series with Jeffrey West. Our guest's research centers on a quest to find unifying principles and patterns connecting everything from cells and ecosystems to city social networks and businesses. Questions he poses include, why do organisms and ecosystems scale with size in a remarkably universal and systematic fashion? Is there a maximum size of cities? of animals and plants? What about companies? Can scale show us how to create a more sustainable future? By applying the rigor of physics to questions of biology, our guest found that despite the riotous diversity in sizes of mammals, they are all, to a large degree, scaled versions of each other. This speaks to everything from how long we can expect to live to how many hours of sleep we all each need. He then made the even bolder move of exploring his work's applicability to cities and to the business world. These investigations have led to powerful insights about the elemental laws that bind us together in profound ways, and how all complex systems are dancing to the same simple tune, however diverse and unrelated they may seem. It is a great pleasure to welcome the author of Scale, the universal laws of life and death in organisms, cities, and companies. Jeffrey West, welcome to the show. <laughs> thank you, Aidan. Nice to be here. and Thank you for inviting me, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. We've been chatting for half an hour <laughs> off air, and I was like, oh, I should have been recording all that. But it's, it's so great to have you, and you're so good to devote your time to this project, essentially, because we're going to do multiple episodes to give as much of a framework of this brilliant work that you've done as as possible. And I want to thank you in advance for that and let our audience know what a treat they're ever in for as well. So I'd love to start, Jeffrey, with the big picture that you start with in the book. And with your permission to display the opening graphs in the book, because they are essential to understanding what you're talking about here. And you open the book with a sampling of an enormous number of scaling relationships that quantifiably describe how almost any measurable characteristic of animals, plants, ecosystems, cities, and companies scales with sides. The existence of these remarkable regularities, you tell us, strongly suggest that there is a common conceptual framework underlying all of these very different, highly complex phenomenon, and that the dynamics growth and organization of animals, plants, human social behavior, cities, and companies are in fact, subject to similar generic laws. Now, there's a lot in that to get us started. But I thought I'd tee you up 
And perhaps you can take it whichever way you like there to give context for this brilliant introduction to the book. Well, well thank you, Aidan. You've really set me up. <laughs> and uh, yes, I'm not too sure where to begin other than to say that, um, you know, I, I think at, at first blush, you know, when you look around you um, and you look across the planet, um, you know, at all scales, it all looks sort of arbitrary and capricious and random and sort of this the, the kind of this messy world that we live in and uh, everything from our daily lives to, you know, I mean, horrible things like that happening in Ukraine now. But but just to the, you know, look, I look across here, I look across a valley and I can see plants and trees and it just looks sort of random. And of course, um, you know, even if you put on your scientific hat, um, you're sort of supported in that by sort of the, the, a crude, maybe naive idea of natural selection and evolution, that it was the survival of the fittest and sort of a large amount of capriciousness and arbitrariness and so on that led to whatever we have. So given that background, um, one would not expect to see great regularity in the, um, in, the, in the world of complexity. That is, that's the messy world that we live in on the surface of the planet. You would, um, you know, unlike sort of um, maybe the motions of the planets or the even the origins of the universe, let us say, um, the, the sort of the, the, the stark physical world where physics has been so hugely successful, um, you don't have that image about the biological and social world, as I say. So um, just in my own development, when I came across this early work, on how something as complex as met metabolism, metabolic rate, scales with the size of an animal, and saw you know how, that it scaled regularly. I mean, this is old data that was collected by uh, a biologist named Max Kleiber back in the early 1930s, um, and he collected this data, and I think he actually did some of his own measurements on metabolic rate of different animals and plotted them versus their size, size being their weight. And um, he found an extraordinarily simple regular relationship. And uh, you know, for those familiar, what he did was he plotted it logarithmically. And for those not familiar, all that simply means is that um, instead of the axes going one, two, three, four, five, it goes one, 10, 100, 1,000, goes up by factors of 10. And part of the reason for doing that is he, he had data going from um, initially from the mouse to the elephant. In fact, this is often called the mouse to elephant curve. <laughs> but um, And um, if you try to put a mouse and an elephant on a simple linear graph, uh, it would, well, I, I worked it out one time, it's many kilometers, you'd have this sheet of paper. So by, by using these logarithmic coordinates, that is one, 10, hundred, a thousand, you can get the mouse and elephant on the same piece of paper sitting on your desk. And uh, when he did that, he found that the metabolic rate plotted in that way against weight, against mass, was a straight line. It was a straight line and the points lay very close to that line. Not only that, the slope of that line was a very simple number, it was very close to three quarters. And this became a very famous law, it's called Kleiber's law. And um, it sort of remained a mystery for a very long time, and I'll maybe come back and we can talk about that a little bit later. But 
when I learned that, when I saw that teaching, by the way, the first time I saw it was teaching a uh, physics course to um, biologist and pre-med students uh, back at Stanford a long time ago. Um, and I wanted to show them some physics-y looking things in biology. And I, I was searching the literature and I came across this. And I thought, oh, this is great. And I did it for the course, but it took me a while to realize it. My God, that's remarkable. Just because of the things I said earlier, how come they all line up on a line? They're all supposed to have, everything is supposed to be historically contingent. Not only each animal, but each component of the animal, each organ, each cell type, each genome, all has its own evolutionary history. And so, you know, if you plotted this, well, there might be some vague regularity, but that you would get something that lies on a straight line, sort of went against the grain. So that was, that was a classic scaling curve. And scaling, the idea of scale, the idea of asking the question, um, if I have a system that's operating, what happens if I increase its size? What happens if I double the size of the system? Does everything go up by a factor of two? Or how does it change? And so this is a, a, a central part of physics. It's been integral to physics, beginning with Galileo, um, and is an integral part, obviously, of engineering, because you have to scale up buildings, bridges, machinery, airplanes, and so on, and businesses. Um, if you have a business and you start it, it grows, and you have to scale up production and so on. So it's sort of in the background of almost everything and is very rarely formalized. That was one of the other curious things about it. Even though it's all pervasive, somehow, and the word is used, and especially in recent years in businesses, and people are familiar with the term, um, there isn't kind of a formalism that you sort of associate with it. In physics, there is something, and uh, there's been a lot of work over the years, but no one gets taught it. I don't suppose anywhere in, um, in, in academia, in physics departments, is there a course or even a part of a course where the lecturer says, okay, the next few weeks, we're gonna teach you about scaling. No, you just pick it up as you go along, which is sort of interesting. So um, I picked it up as I went along, so to speak. And um, just to give you a sense of its background, maybe, I mentioned Galileo. Galileo, because it's kind of remarkable that it goes back to the very beginnings of modern science. I mean, Galileo is the father, of basically, of all modern science. And um, uh, he, um, in his marvelous book called uh, The Dialogues Concerning the Two New Sciences, uh, which I think is the book that was banned by the, <laughs> by the, by the Vatican. Uh, and he was uh, housebound for 20 years because of some of the things that he was saying that they didn't like. But um, he, uh, he it's, it's in the form of dialogues. And one of the questions that comes up in that is a, is a fascinating one. Um, one of the pro protagonists asked, you know, why is it we can't have sort of infinitely tall trees or infinitely tall buildings. What is it that limits it? And Galileo, in terms of the, uh, the central character of the dialogues, um, answers, well, it's actually quite simple. And it's to do with scaling. This is me paraphrasing. And he says, look, um, 
if you um, if you if you if you take a square, for example, and you double the size, of course the area increases by a factor of two times two, four. Um, now the thing that Galileo realized that was crucial about that is that a beam holding up a building or a leg holding up an animal, human being, um, the strength of that leg in terms of what it can bear is proportional to its cross-sectional area. It's not proportional to its length. And that's why, by the way, those <laughs> if, you, if you do any home construction and you go to the store, they label wood by their cross-section, two by twos, two by fours, and so on. Because that's the strength of the beam is is the piece of wood is actually in its cross sectional area. So he said, look, the strength therefore is only increasing like two squared or whatever it is. If you increase it by three, three squared, but the weight that it has to support is a volume, and a volume, if you double it, is two times two times two is eight. So if you double the size, you've increased the strength by a factor of four. But it now holds, now has to hold up something that is increased by a factor of eight. Now, if you continue that process indefinitely, obviously the weight begins to um, outstrip the properties of the piece of wood in this case, or your limb, and the you the the uh, material can no longer sustain the weight. So eventually, the building or the animal would collapse under its own weight. And Galileo, in that book, has a little drawing of, I forget if it's a dog, it might be a dog, and then an elephant. And to show the elephant has these great big fat legs, and the dog has nice thin legs. And that's necessary in order to hold up the huge weight of the elephant. And they scale according, roughly speaking, to this simple scaling law that, that areas go as the square and volumes go as the cube. So that's the, the simplest prototype of a scaling law, but it has extraordinary, I mean, here's so, so simple argument, but with extraordinary profound consequences, because it says that if you want to keep scaling up, it, it's your, if you, and you don't change anything, the system will collapse. Therefore, you must change. You must innovate if you want to scale up. And innovation in the sense that we just discussed, the physical sense is, okay, you have to change the material. Instead of getting wood, you better ch choose iron or steel. Um, so that's one way of doing it. The other is to change design. You can't cross the San Francisco Bay with a long strip of even steel. It'll, you have to create the new design, which is a suspension bridge, and so on. So... So it's extraordinarily profound that, uh, you know, this very simple argument says you have to innovate in order to increase size, to scale up the system. And that goes in a physical system. And as you well know, it also goes in a business, in a company, same thing. You have to innovate if you're going to keep increasing in size. That's my sort of introductory thoughts about what, what scale is and why it's fundamental and important, and it's important for people to understand. We'll come back to the energy that has to be put into the system to avoid entropy and all those kind of things. We'll talk about that in a little while today as well. But I wanted, to, Jeffrey, to 
to remind our audience, today's an introductory session to give you kind of an overview and we'll dive into some of these deeper layers later. Like, for example, Jeffrey gives a magnificent story about scaling up of boats and some of the disasters that can come from that. But I wanted to just raise some of the questions and, and maybe shine a light on some of the questions that emerge from this remarkable research that you and your team did, because there's a slew of questions that come from this work they're kind of ones like, well, if that's possible, what about this? And some of those include the correlation between size of a city and its levels of innovations and patterns and indeed the need to innovate faster than ever before. So this is really important one for this audience because one of the things you often get as a, a consultant in innovation or a keynote speaker like I do is people kind of go, well, you're just scaremongering, saying the speed of change is getting quicker and quicker. So that was one. The other is the patterns that could help us understand lifespan, and not just of us and on other animals, but if companies and cities, and indeed regarding cities, can they scale efficiently, or are they destined to crumble into slums? So is chaos and order sometimes finish in absolute chaos? And does that happen for the planet as well? And you ask whether there can be a science of cities, and by extension, a science of companies, in other words, a conceptual framework for understanding their dynamics, their growth, their evolution, in a quantifiably predictable framework. I thought we'd whet the appetite of our audience there because there's gems of questions in there. There's like, you're showing us the holy grail here for some of us because we, we have a, a trial and error approach towards innovation, while your work can actually shine a light and kind of go, no, no, there's a science on this and the science works and here's the proof. And this is where this is such fascinating work. Well, yes, thank you. <laughs> you said it much more articulately than I would, I must say. Uh, those are the kinds of questions I um, that um, sort of permeate the book, but permeate my work. And those are the kinds of things I'm involved in. Um, and um, indeed, um, the work, you know, originally started uh, with um, trying to understand this metabolic rate scaling. Um, and by the way, I, I, maybe I should have said in that, in the metabolic rate, what that means in, in simple terms is just, you know, sort of, so to speak, how much food you need each day to stay alive. Um, you know, how does that change whether you're a human being or a giraffe or whatever? Um, and, um, and, and you could ask similar questions, of course, about, as you've already indicated, cities and companies and so on, and that's what we did. But the first part of the work was motivated entirely by biology. Um, um, I, I had been doing, um, just by, as a matter of background, um, I am a physicist by training, and I spent most of my career doing high-energy physics, quantum, you know, um, I know quarks and gluons and string theory and dark matter, all these wonderful questions, extremely difficult where you work exceedingly hard and maybe even you're very clever and you make sort of epsilon progress. <laughs> At least that's the feeling. Um, so, uh, but I became very interested in these questions, uh, particularly because I always had at the back of my mind this scale, this, this weird scaling of metabolic rate the regularity of it. And um, uh, it, later in my life, I, um, when I was becoming conscious of my age, and one of my motivations is I happened to come from a family of short lived males. Um, 
and just so happens that most of my male relatives, uh, my father, grandfather, my uncles, die in their 50s or 60s. And so I, my expectation of lifespan was sort of early 60s. So needless to say, when I was in my late 50s or into my 50s, I became, <laughs> I started to realize, gee whiz, there may not be that long to live. Um, why is that? Actually, it was the thing. You know, what is? Why is it, in fact, that uh, you know I'm aging and dying, and um, and so um, that led me to actually the real thrust of my early work was to understand aging and and mortality, and uh, and and that of course leads immediately once you start thinking about it to metabolism, because metabolism is what's keeping you alive. And so if, if aging and mortality are taking place in the system, what the hell's going wrong with the metabolism? I mean, what, you know, why can't you just go on feeding yourself and you just go on living forever? Or, you know, it's the same thing with, um, you know, a company or, a, or an automobile. You know, what is it that is, well, we know, you know, when you think of a machinery, we all intuitively know there's wear and tear. And so, um, uh, and that does bring us into the whole question of entropy, that all these systems um, are entropic in the words, in the physics terms. And all that means is um, that, um, you know, the, the very system that's keeping you alive, um, that's functioning, is also creating damage, whether you like it or not. And whether you like it or not, is the most fundamental law of the universe, believe it or not. It's called the second law of thermodynamics, which says that if you use energy to create order, so you keep yourself alive, you make a company, you make iPhones, you make automobiles, whatever, you make cells, whatever you do, you necessarily also create disorder. And that's called entropy. And the, and, and the real fight is to minimize entropy in, in, you know, in all these systems. That's what you want to try to do, is minimize what we call dissipation of energy. And so um, that was the framework in which I started thinking about these problems, but it needed to understand metabolism and what's keeping you alive. And uh, the, the, should I talk about, maybe I should, should I, talk about the metabolic rate scaling and the origins of it please do please do and and you know feel free to go whichever way you like on the entropy even like one of the things that made sense to me and it was because of you and through your work was well one of the ways entropy increases in an organization is bureaucracy so yes you have progress but then the bigger the organization and the the older it is the more bureaucracy which is the waste product if you want to think about it that way so yes, I, I'll come back to that. But uh, yes, uh, this is this is obviously going to be a bit of a non-linear conversation, which I like, by the way. But <laughs> uh, Com complexity uh, is welcome here, sir. It is, yes, exactly. It's all, and it feeds my ADD. But um, the uh, um, but you brought up the bureaucracy. It's interesting because we just uh, we've been thinking about that. So this is a bit tangential, and I'd like to come back to it later. But let me just say it. Uh, again, to sort of whet the appetite. So as usual, this started in the following way in the last uh, uh, couple of years. Um, myself and a colleague in particular, 
uh, were sitting around and as usual, complaining about bureaucracy. We'd both been in positions in the past of administrators, you know, running something and were complaining about bureaucracy and so on, the usual complaints. And then I sat back and I said, you know, it's true. Well, you know, the, the government drives us nuts, the university, every, every bureaucracy has this, the, 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 this terrible imposition on trying to get real things done. But I said, you know, I wonder if anyone's asked the question, how big should a bureaucracy be? You know, if you want to run a university, how much administration do you really need to do the following functions? Or if you're running a company, um, you know, whether it's a production company or, a, I don't know, an investment company, how much bureaucracy do you need at a minimum to keep it going? Or if you're a cell, um, how many regulatory genes do you really need to make everything function um, efficiently? So that started a conversation and we began to realize that no one, as far as we could tell, had ever thought about it in the, quite in those terms. So it may well be that all these complaints about bureaucracy are sort of vacuous in the sense that if you knew the underlying science, you would recognize actually the federal government has the right size of bureaucracy for the kinds of things it has to do and the size of the government, size of the population, blah, blah, blah incredibly challenging problem, and it may well be no progress can be made. However, we did start thinking about it, and we put a little uh, collaboration together with some very bright young people. And um, amazingly, we got a big funding from the National Science Foundation, <laughs> which just began <laughs> uh, this last year. So we're now it's sort of, um, you know, we're sort of sit or get off the pot kind of situation. <laughs> and we have to actually think about this seriously. And we are. And uh, maybe later when we talk about cities and companies, um, I'll come back to some of the thoughts that we've had, some of which were already expressed in the book, because I'd obviously, as you say, I'd already been thinking about that as what is the analog to entropic entropy production in companies and its relationship to regulatory mechanisms um, as manifested through bureaucracy administration and so on. Sort of the what you might call the non-productive part of an organization in, uh, without even making it pejorative. Anyway, let me go back to the metabolic rate because it is where it begins and it, it is a wonderful template, I think, for understanding all these systems. And one of the things that's also good about it is uh, two other things. One is it's something uh, where the work is, is quite mature and has been worked out and we understand things in much more detail. So that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is... Um, it takes it away from things like cities and companies where certainly with certain audiences, people have very well-conceived, preconceived notions about how you're supposed to do things again. You know, and it's often expressed in some of those books probably behind you, which tell you how I ran this company and this is how it is because it was so successful because this is how you're supposed to run a company. This is what you do. That making and there must be you know twenty hundred books a year published like that it seems to me, and they're all studied in business schools and they may they're sinful from my perspective because they try to extrapolate to the general from the particular and sometimes that's used. I mean case studies are extraordinarily important, 
but you've also got to have a general kind of framework. And that's what I'm interested in. So let me, so talking about biology and metabolism sort of removes it from some of those preconceived notions. And then we can come back uh, maybe in our conversation and use some of those metaphorically in the, in, in the, in these more touchy situations. <laughs> <laughs> so let me talk about um, metabolism again, going back to that. So the other thing um, that was remarkable about that scaling law, um, as I said, so just repeat, if you plot it logarithmically, going up by factors of 10, metabolic rate, how much energy, how much food you need to eat each day to stay alive um, um, on a logarithmic plot um, is a straight line. It's amazing. It's the simplest possible thing. Um, and its slope of that straight line is three quarters. So uh, the first thing you realize is that um, if it had been totally naive, that the most naive thing you would expect without knowing anything, you say, well, you double the size of an organism, you have twice as many cells, twice as many customers or workers, or you just double the metabolic rate. No, that would be linear. So the slope of the line would have been one. Instead, it's three quarters. It's less than one, which we call sublinear, which means the bigger you are, the more efficient you are. You need less energy per capita, per cell in this instance, the bigger you are in a systematic, predictable way. So that's pretty powerful. So that was interesting. But the other thing that's even more interesting is that if you look at any physiological quantity that you can measure, so something as mundane as the length of your aorta, first tube that comes out of your heart, um, or um, you know the diffusion of oxygen across some membrane in your body, um, but any physiological quantity, um, or any what's called life history event, like how long you live, how many children do you have, how long does it take to, to grow to maturity, all of them, when you plot those numbers in that same logarithmic way, also are straight lines. It's sort of amazing. Um, and not only that, the slopes of those lines are always simple multiples of one quarter. So just from the data, without just the data, and this was known um, certainly by the 40s and 50s. It was known and were people, you know, it was a major part of biology, I would say. But then it got sort of forgotten because we had the molecular revolution and, the, um, and understanding DNA, genomics, and so on. Um, and it all got sort of swept aside and moved into ecology. Ecologists are aware of this, but even then it's still a minor part relatively. But so this body of work stood there, which was sort of antithetical to your image, and even the image that biology represents of itself, of extraordinarily complex and also extraordinarily diverse, and each organism sort of has to be looked at in its own terms. And here it's saying exactly the opposite. They're all scaled versions of one another, actually, you know, in, in some, roughly speaking. So I got intrigued by this incredibly intrigued because of my my morbid interest in death. And I, I, I started to think, my God, you know, if I, obviously if I'm to understand mortality, 
aging and mortality, I better understand this scaling of metabolic rate in particular. So I started thinking about that and to cut a very long story short, eventually I did some work and then teamed up with um, an outstanding biologist, ecologist named Jim Brown and his then student, Brian Enquist, who is now a well-known ecologist himself. And um, we claim we solved the problem. And let me just tell you what it is. So the first thing you realize is, and I, uh, the other thing I should have said, these scaling laws aren't just about mammals, um, but it's across every taxonomic group, every form of life, birds, fish, crustacea, trees, plants, which are you know, completely different. Yet they all, when you look at their scaling phenomena, all scale in a similar way, and they all have this one quarter. Four, four is the universal, spiritual, fundamental number of the biological universe. That's it. Four is the thing that when you look around you, four is the number. So where in the hell does this come from? Where in the hell does all this come from? It's not, you know. So um, I realized that, you know, the, the fundamental problem that life has, that, you know, your, your own body, you're made of about 10 trillion cells, roughly, very roughly. Um, maybe it's 100 trillion, I forget. Yeah, ton, more like 100 trillion, actually, 10 to the 14th. And, um, you know, and, and very roughly speaking, all of them have to be serviced in a sort of roughly democratic, efficient way to varying degrees, obviously, depending on what, what org organismic function they serve. But roughly speaking, you have to, have, well, it's obvious what, what natural selection has done. It's done the obvious. It's evolved networks, these networks that supply cells. And the one that most, familiar, most of us are familiar with is our cardiovascular system, um, you know, which um, supplies cells with oxygen and other nutrients in order for respiratory uh, metabolism to take place using oxygen to produce um, our energy. And, um, and so we have this extraordinary network of uh, cardiovascular system, but when you think about it, you're sort of full of networks, you're all networks. I mean, there's your, your respiratory system, your lungs, your renal system, even your bones, of course, are a, a network. Um, certainly your neural system, your brain. So you are this bunch of networks. And what I realized is, what I hypothesized was, actually, maybe these scaling laws are some extraordinary reflection of the mathematics and physics that control these networks. That was the idea. So again, I'll cut a long story short. So I started working on that. And the answer is yes, that's <laughs> they are. And in fact, so um, it's these generic properties and these properties of these networks have to be, we use the word universal, but they have to be very generic because obviously you're not a plant or a tree and uh, you're not a fish and so on. I mean, you have, your networks are different, but um, that, so it must be generic properties. So the generic properties are things like uh, the obvious ones that seem innocuous. The network has to go everywhere. Everybody has to be fed by this network. That's called space filling. So you have to put that into mathematics and so on. But perhaps the most, the, the, the biggest assumption, which is huge, that um, I had to make was that these networks have evolved by the process of 
evolution and natural selection to, to, towards optimality. That is, um, the ones that have survived and are functioning are optimal because they have minimized the amount of energy you need to allocate to staying alive and just hunt and gather in order to maximize, and this is the whole idea of Darwinian evolution, to maximize the amount of energy you allocate to sex and reproduction and the rearing of children to pass on your genes. I mean, that's the sort of the fundamental tenet of Darwinian evolution, um, and it's called fitness. And so you maximize your fitness by minimizing, from that viewpoint, the mundane process of keeping the organism alive. So therefore, the idea was this network, which is, you know, this extraordinary network inside you, um, networks, I should say, um, have optimized. So for example, your circulatory system has optimized so that the amount of energy your heart is, has to do on the average is minimized in order to pump blood through to supply oxygen to your cells. And what I mean by minimized is the following. Um, if I were to, to increase the length of the third branch of your arterial system by a factor of, um, I don't know, 25%, or decrease it by 15%, you would have to work harder. So you're in sort of this basin of optimality. Any change that you make to the system, anywhere in it, you're going to have to work harder. That's the idea. Well, actually, most people don't know, but almost all the laws of physics are formulated fundamentally in exactly those terms. You know, the, the theory, Newton's laws, the theory of relativity, quantum mechanics are now all put in those terms that there's some optimality going on. So here, that's a version of it in a, in a somewhat more, um, I don't know, a coarse-grained way that on the average, so it's somewhat different than physics, it's sort of on the average, there's obviously variation, but on the average, we, we share, every mammal that's ever existed shares the same kind of circulatory system that has been optimized so that that's why we've been around a long time. Um, the continually continual feedback in competition, natural selection has led to this optimization so that uh, uh, our heart minimizes the amount of blood, uh, the, the amount of uh, energy it needs to use to pump blood. And so you put that into mathematics and guess what? Out pop the scaling laws, um, to put it simply, including the one quarter, the four, pop out. And um, let me, I'll try to give some hand-waving explanation for that. The four, is actually three plus one in the sound. <laughs> what I mean by that is the three, if you trace it back in the calculations, comes from the fact that the network, I said, is space filling, has to go everywhere. Well, space filling means three dimensions. You have to fill a three-dimensional space. So that three actually reflects the fact that we live in three dimensions. In other words, had we be, if we were organisms living in nine dimensions, that number would have been nine. <laughs> now, the plus one is a little more sophisticated. and I um, So the optimality 
um, leads to the extraordinary constraint that these networks are approximately fractals. Now, many people are familiar with fractals, but let me just say a word or two about them. Fractals are also a word associated with them is self-similar. And everybody's familiar with the concept, whether they don't, whether they know the words or not, because everybody has looked at a tree, classic oak or big tree, and realized that if you cut a branch off of it and you take it away with all the other branches, and you take it away and you plant it in the ground, it looks like a little tree, it looks like a scaled down version of the original tree. Or if you have a head of broccoli and you break off one piece, and you put it away, it looks like a little scaled down version of the broccoli. And you can actually do the exercise of buying, going to the store, buying a head of broccoli, breaking it off uh, a little, what's it called, floret, I think, uh, whatever it's called. And you put it on the, on the table and you take your iPhone and take a picture of it and scale it up. It looks like the other the piece of broccoli from which it came. That's called self-similarity. And that's a fractal. So what you discover is these generic principles of um, these networks that I just described lead to the optimality in particular leads to fractal-like structures that you have this tree-like, well, you're, everyone's familiar with that, that you have an aorta that keeps branching all the way down to capillaries. And that's true of almost all your networks. And they all have some version to varying degrees of this fractality. And um, uh, now, Having said all that, one of the curious things about the mathematics of fractals is that in terms of how they scale, I, I said a volume, uh, an area scales like a length squared, two times two, a uh, volume like a length cubed, two times two times two, as we said in the Galilean example. Um, um, fractals sort of mathematically add another dimension. So even though you're in three dimensions, when you've optimized, when you've made it as fractal as you possibly can, it behaves as if it's actually in four dimensions. I mean, this is one of these peculiar mathematical phenomena. And um, it's called, in fact, the fractal dimension. And so um, it turns out by maximally optimizing, you've maximized the fractality, and that adds a one to the three. I mean, that's... It's I've sort of hand wave and it's, but that's when you look at the math. You know, it's all in the mathematics. You have to go through it, but that's sort of what is the when you boil it all down is happening. So it behaves as if we behave as if we're in four dimensions, and so that's the the quarter, the three quarters of metabolic rate. Your heart rate decreases as with the minus one quarter. Hearts slow down the bigger you are. And indeed, one of the wonderful things that comes from this is that all time scales lengthen systematically following this one quarter scaling, uh, the bigger you are, so that heart rates follow it. And indeed, lifespans do. Lifespans increase. I mean, if a rate decreases, length, time lengths increase. And uh, uh, lifespans increase very approximately as uh, with this one quarter uh, relationship, and uh, and and you can understand. I and now I just want to go back to lifespan while I'm while I'm on it, and that is that. So this explains um, this explains the origin of the scaling laws, and also as a byproduct, 
um, it, it, uh, it tells you um, the sort of idealized structure of these networks inside you, um, including, so one ridiculous example might be if you perversely wanted to know the flow rate, radius, length, stress on the side of the tube of the fifth branch of a hippopotamus's arterial system. There's a formula sitting somewhere on my desk here and I could calculate and I could tell you what it is. And if someone perversely went and measured it, it would be pretty correct because it's been done not for hippopotamuses, but it has been, it does agree for cats and dogs and mice and rats and human beings. So, you know, so you get also um, a mathematical a description and prediction for all kinds of things. And we can talk about some of those, but um, going back to lifespan, uh, it also can explain lifespan in the following way. So maybe I'll talk to a few minutes about aging and lifespan, because it goes back to what we've already discussed. And that is, there's these flows through networks, great, keeping you alive, supplying oxygen to cells and all the rest of it, marvelous. But of course, like any flow, it's, as I said already, it's wearing and tearing. It's, uh, you know, the roads wear out, your pipes in your house wear out, everything wears out, your car wears out, <laughs> um, and your tubes, so to speak, and in fact, everything inside you very slowly degrades. And of course, you, you know, I mean, you, um, you also repair yourself uh, in those repair mechanisms. And there are repair mechanisms, but as you well know, if you keep cars for a very long time, it gets increasingly expensive to, to you know, repairs become, and at some stage, it ain't worth it anymore. Uh, and the only way you can do it is either, you know, if you're an antique car enthusiast, you hardly ever drive the bloody thing, or if you do drive it, you're continually, you have to put huge amounts of money in to keep it going. So, um, so it is with us, and um, and so natural selection has evolved so that you repair enough, so that uh, you know we stay alive to we're maybe close to 40, 35, and produce ten to fifteen children, of which you know maybe two thirds, if you're lucky, survive. I mean that's what we're supposed to do, and uh, then you die. I mean that's supposed that's in our natural state. That's you know. 10,000 or more years ago. Um, and um, so you repair enough, but you don't, but after, you know, 35 or 40, natural selection probably doesn't care, so to speak. I mean, making it anthropocentric, uh, doesn't care. And some people, of course, can go on living just like a car. You're very lucky. Sometimes um, you have a car that lasts much longer than many of its brothers and cousins. But, um, but mostly, you know, you, you, that's when you're supposed to die, so to speak. And indeed, the um, lifespan of human beings on this planet, the, the um, you know, so average lifespan in about 1830 or so was less than 35. That was the, now, a huge amount of that was infant mortality. But even if you take that out, it's still, you know, maybe in the 40s. And even I, I remember in writing my book, I looked up, my father was born in 1914. And um, 
I think his expected lifespan was just over 60, which is what he achieved. He died at 61. Um, and mine, I think, is in the, I've exceeded mine. Mine was in the, I was born in 1940. I'm 81 now, and uh, I would die, uh, I was expected to die maybe less than 10 years ago. But of course, you're, you know, now, if you look, I'm expected to live, I don't know, seven more years, I don't know, whatever. But, but now, why is that? Now, what is the origin of this? So the wear and tear. Now, we have a theory. Now, here's a crucial point. We have a theory, mathematical theory. It predicts, it can calculate things. You can calculate the damage that's being done. So in principle, you can sort of estimate how long does it take before this amount of damage is going to occur? You can also, in, in principle, estimate how much of that is going to be repaired. So you can estimate how much of the unrepaired damage is occurring as a function of age. And then you can say, well, when this amount of damage has occurred, Punked. It's over. There's, you, there's no point in keeping the car any longer because it's all falling apart. Which is, I'm, I sadly, I'm approaching. I need a new exhaust pipe. I need exactly. <laughs> I need. Uh, I need a new pretty much everything. Sadly, but um, but that's the way. Uh, but that's it. Now, here's the interesting thing. The I said the metabolic rate increases with this three quarters slope which we say three quarters power of mass is the technical way of saying it. And I said earlier on, that means it's sublinear, it's less than linear, which means per cell, it's actually decreasing. It's decreasing in fact with a quarter power. So the bigger you are, the less energy is needed to support a cell. So, you are more efficient than your dog because you need less energy per cell to stay alive, even though you're bigger. But you're not as efficient as your horse and so on. So, but that amount of energy is decreasing systematically with this quarter power. Therefore, the amount of damage is decreasing systematically with a quarter power. Therefore, you're going to systematically live longer because damage is occurring at a systematically slower rate given by a quarter power. So you are going to live a quarter power longer the bigger you are as a function of mass. That's pretty much the way the calculation goes. I mean, you have all kinds of bells and whistles and things. So you can predict that long, bigger things will live longer and so on. And if, in the book, I think I have a graph of... Um, the, uh, the the maybe I didn't include, I forget if I included or not, but that is supported by the data. There's a lot of variance in the data because um, lifespan is actually very hard to measure, believe it or not. I mean, for animal across different animals and so on. And we are exceptional, needless to say. We had the right lifespan in that 1830s. I mean, you know, we if you do the numbers and the scaling, we should, uh, our light, natural lifespan is about less than 40. That has changed because we've done, we've intervened. And in fact, that's a good segue eventually to cities because we urbanized and, and, and perhaps the biggest thing that we did that uh, didn't occur to the 19th century 
um, was uh, the introduction of um, sanitation, was that nobody washed themselves basically until about 1880, as far as I can tell, you know, roughly speaking. But uh, sanitation and sewer systems were introduced, and that had a huge effect with increasing urbanization. Um, but anyway, the, so the theory can account for, the theory is great, it accounts for this, this idea of um, increasing lifespan. And, um, and the other thing I should add, which is very intriguing, um, heart rates from studying the, you know, from uh, uh, the analysis of the circulatory system in terms of the calculations, heart rates decrease, maybe I said that earlier, uh, with this quarter power. Um, elephants' heart rates uh, beat much slower than ours. And the whales beat, you know, I don't know, just I know how, I know a dozen, ten times a minute, I think. Um, and, a, and a shrew, the smallest mammal, beats at something like 1,200 times a minute. And they fit beautifully on this quarter power. That. But what is interesting, if heart rates decrease with this quarter power and lifespan increases with a quarter power, if you multiply them together, so you multiply heart rate times lifespan, the increase of one exactly cancels the decrease of the other. So heart rates times lifespan doesn't change with size. But what is heart rates times lifespan? That's the number of heartbeats in a lifetime. So even though a mouse only lives two or three years and it has some humongous heart rate, and a whale lives for about 120, a blue whale lives maybe for 120 years and has a heart rate that is extremely slow. The number of heartbeats each of them has in a lifetime is roughly speaking the same. It's about one and a half billion. And, uh, and that brings up sort of something much more general. And that is if you look through the right lens and rescale accordingly, everything is sort of living, reproducing and dying in the same way. <laughs> We're all sort of rescaled accordingly, very roughly speaking. And that's sort of beautiful, actually. It is. It's absolutely beautiful. And <clears throat> like one of the things that I thought about how important the work is, is if we're moving towards a more artificially intelligent machines that are programming things and being able to spot patterns, etc., your work and your coefficients and your your generic um, uh, theories become hyper essential. So you're able to, if they're programmable, and you have the data, data in is valuable data. So the machine can actually, you know, look at that data and then spit out something that maybe you haven't thought of. And surely because it's a machine, it's going to spot things that a human hasn't seen. I thought about the value of your work in that and the importance of your work in that in work like the Lifespan Institute, I think there's one in California, David Sinclair's sure. work, etc. Sure. So there was that 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 was jumping to my mind all the time about your work here, how important that is to be programmable, and that they are regular outputs from the inputs that you've discovered. And then the other thing, I thought about the importance of medicine, because I often cite mice and rats in my writing in my workshops, particularly about the studies, studies were done on the brains of mice and rats, blah, blah, blah. Absolutely. 
And you say a greatly underappreciated case in point is the hidden role that scaling plays in medicine. Absolutely. Much of the research and development on diseases, new drugs and therapeutic procedures is undertaking using mice as models, the mice's model system. And this immediately raises the crucial question of how to scale up the findings and experiments on mice to humans, because yes, there are they have a similar brain structure or whatever that might be. But it goes way deeper than that. And your work speaks hugely to that work. Yes, indeed. Um, thank you for bringing that up. Um, you brought up two things that are very important. Let me address the first one first, the AI. And so I, um, I you know, AI and big data, AI, machine learning, etc. fantastic advances, I think. But I'm extremely concerned about them. I was very excited about them. But what I'm afraid of is that they've become a little bit mindless, put it to be provocative. Um, the idea that, you know, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, you have a program, you stick it in, turn the crank, and out comes all this stuff, and then you act on it without, you know, I mean, yes, I mean, AI is, is terrible for long-term projections and so on because you have no understanding, zero understanding in the traditional, you know, AI, that it's, um, it's correlations. And as we know, correlation and causation are not the same. And so uh, we need to be exceedingly careful. And already a few years ago, I wrote a short article in Scientific American, when big data was the thing, um, much more than AI. I mean, we knew about AI, but uh, big data was the uh, hyped phrase of the time. And I wrote, um, I actually, I wrote, I, I titled it, it had two different titles, funnily enough, that Scientific American did. But the title I liked was Big Data Needs Big Theory. And it was exactly what you're bringing up, that what I'd hoped is that work such as mine, and lots of others, of course, you want, what you want is the integration of the two. You want to use AI um, and uh, machine learning as a tool um, like we use many other, we've used computation forever, of course. But uh, you know, you you so use it as a tool, but not as the fundamental object. I mean, that is exceedingly dangerous, and um, so um, I'm I'm very concerned that um, there's been this rush to you know everybody taking it up. It's hyped up again, uh, like many of these things in the last few. Everything like you know, even going back to when it was um, you know. Um, nano stuff nano was going to solve everything the human genome project you know by by 2020 every disease would be you know we'd understand so and, and it's one of those things again and everything else is forgotten and um silicon valley just to use that as a generic term has sort of just taken this attitude that that's all we need and there has been this kind of philosophy that we don't need Newton's laws or quantum mechanics and so on. I mean, that's actually been said. I don't think I would say it's only a minority really believe that. But it is that kind of as an extreme view that we just let the data speak for itself kind of thing. And, uh, you know, the kinds of things I've been involved in, smart cities and uh, smart medicine, they're great. And we need, you know, it's fantastic. But we need to do it in integrated with and in conjunction with traditional, you know, the ways of uh, doing science. And, and I, I, I think it will come, 
But at the moment, we're so, you know, everybody's so overwhelmed with the hype that it's been forgotten. And I'm, um, so I've been very concerned about it. As I say, it started with the, uh, the big data craziness. Um, again, it was great because, my God, all our work relies on data. I mean, it's big, big data. And in fact, I've worked uh, many, especially on the city work, uh, with, you know, what certainly could be called big data. Um, but, uh, and we use it um, very effectively. But um, we do need this uh, much more integrated way of doing things. So thank you for bringing that up. The second thing about uh, using uh, what, what's called model systems in uh, biomedicine, different use of the word model than physicists use, but using mice as the model system. Um, yes, I, I, it, is, it is traditionally forgotten often that uh, you know all our drugs and all our procedures, basically all our scaled up versions from mice. I mean, basically, sometimes I guess it's been rats and dogs, I don't know, but uh, mostly it's mice. And, um, you know, the, the one that I'm very familiar with, so because so one of the interesting things is when we first did this work, so I think the paper was published in 1997, the original one on networks and the, under, the origin of metabolic rate scaling and so on. Um, I was, um, I remember I was contacted those days by regular mail um, by um, the National Institute of Health the guy that runs their uh, pharmacology section. And they said, well, we've read your paper and this is fascinating because this is the big problem we face, said, and we'd love to see if you would like to get involved in that. Now, I was, I, and I, I did, I was doing too many things. I was still transitioning from quarks and gluons and string theory. <laughs> so to take on something that I knew absolutely nothing about, I mean, I know nothing about, knew nothing then about drugs and so on. So I didn't, which was a shame, even though I was at other times approached by people, professors of pharmacology, about possibly collaborating on some of these issues. It's certainly something they're obviously aware of, clearly. But uh, the one area where it wasn't so aware, I was shocked, is in cancer. Um, tumors and so on. And in fact, there's something called Petto's paradox. There's a famous oncologist, it's a British, Sir Richard Petto in, uh, in, in, in Britain, um, who remarked that, you know, it's weird. We do, you know, much of our work is done on mice, but mice get so many more tumors than we do. So, you know, why should we believe any of this work? You know, I mean, that, that we should think about that kind of thing. That's a real problem. And not only that, whales get almost none. So what's, you know, why should we believe my, you know, why should we believe our work kind of thing? I, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Well, this theory, of course, points to an explanation. In fact, we've written stuff about it, that, you know, cancer comes from damage in various ways, a large part genetic uh, damaging DNA or stimulating things. And a lot of it comes, most of it, in fact, comes from this kind of metabolic damage, actually, uh, damage from metabolism. Um, that's why they're always telling you to, you know, take antioxidants and so on, you know, and so forth. 
uh, you know, take fish oil or whatever, anyway, antioxidants, is to combat this kind of damage, um, among others. And um, and so, but, you know, I just talked, we just said, you know, in terms of lifespan, the damage done per cell decreases with size. Therefore, the number of cancers is going to decrease with size. And the whale, which is which weighs 100 million times more than a shrew, is going to have so many fewer cancers than the poor little shrew. And no wonder the shrew, which is sits on palm of this hand, smaller than the palm of this hand, you know, lives for about a year and gets presumably lots of cancers in that <laughs> if you were to examine. So that's the explanation. Now, one of the things that sort of is very frustrating is that there really isn't enough data. I mean, the, you, you think that given the billions and billions of dollars that have gone into cancer and the fact that they do them on mice, much of the stuff is done on mice, there would have been somewhere along the line a systematic study of cancers and tumors across in a comparative way across animals. So we don't have enough data really to verify a lot of this. But anyway, there's an example, an explicit example. So actually, it's okay to do experiments on, this is the point, do experiments on mice, but know how to scale it up. So, you know, that's the, the, the take-home message. And by the way, that means doing, you know, going deeper into this than the way I've just talked and deeper than the stuff we've done and look much more specifically because every animal, it's, I mean, maybe I should have said this earlier, I sort of intimated it, the, uh, the scaling laws are what we call coarse-grained. I mean, they're, um, if you look at the graph, they do follow very closely the line, but some lie above, some lie below a little bit and so on. So there's variation, clearly, and there's variance among them. And um, that does represent, um, uh, you know, the, the, the individuality of not only that species, but of course, of an, an organism. I mean, look at us. We're all, you know, we're all human beings and we're all this one mammal and we're lumped in my work. I just lump, I call a human being and that's fine. And we do that all the time, but you know, I'm different than you, and we're different from each other. Um, you know, and, uh, and our differences are minuscule. I mean, the difference in you and me is tiny, actually, really, um, on, on the scale of which we're talking. I think, you know, the work you've done is, it will be built upon, and what a great legacy to leave. I, I just think it's amazing. It's, it's amazing opportunity oh, to, to leave, and that's why... <laughs> I, I was so keen to share it. That's I, I just think, you know, if somebody hears this serendipitously and builds on it or yeah. reacts positively to some of the stuff we say, amazing, ama amazing output from that. But one thing, uh, Jeffrey, I, I thought we'd have time for if you're okay with this. And it's the reason I... Each show, I try to wear a, a pin that tries to reflect in some way it's the a, episode. I've I've got a butterfly here. <laughs> I thought it was a butterfly. Yeah. I was uh, I, it was hard to see on the screen, but it, I thought it might be a butterfly. Yeah, and it, well, it's it's in honor of the work that you've done, and in particular the work you did at the Santa Fe Institute. And as I mentioned to you, I had the, had the great honor and opportunity to interview D. Hawk 
oh, yes. over awesome. seven episodes. It was an amazing experience. And he also wrote the forward to my book. But he told me about the Santa Fe Institute because I didn't know about it. And I was blown away by the work. I know there's great podcasts there. There's great material being published on a regular basis. I follow you. I follow the Santa Fe Institute on LinkedIn, for example. Oh, and I just wanted to, to share that. And we were also due to have the great E.O. Wilson on the show. And sadly, he passed oh, away in December. Yeah. And he was in, it's still in train, deep in writing. And he's like, because uh, he kept putting it off. He's like, I don't have time. I'm writing. <laughs> and I was like, go for it, sir. Go for it. Oh. But um, I wanted to, to say all that to say, beyond complexity, this is about scaling and complexity, emergence, self-organization, and resilience. Oh. This is the title you give a section in the book. And I loved how you put this. And perhaps we'll use this as a as their final message for today to so we don't overwhelm our audience and we That's tee true. them up and prime them for uh, subsequent episodes. You said a typical complex system is composed of myriad individual constituents of or agents that once aggregated take on collective characteristics that are not usually manifested in nor could easily be predicted from the properties of the individual components themselves. This goes for human bodies, this goes for cities, this goes for ant colonies alike. And I thought I'd tee that up because when D. Hawk was telling me about this whole idea of ant colonies and emergence and self-organization, he actually set up Visa to be a self-organization entity. And it worked. It's a, one of the world's top 10 companies still today. But I thought I'd just tee you up with that quote and the idea of complexity to to share because it's so important and grasping the concept is so important, particularly for what we've experienced even in the last two years. And I thought maybe you'd riff on this in our jazz terms on mm -hmm. complexity and emergent behavior, for example. Sure, absolutely. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, I, 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 I think I met Dee once. I know uh, just as I was really getting involved with SFI, uh, it was talked about that, uh, you know, Dee had been influenced by uh, the Santa Fe Institute and the ideas of complexity and emergence and self-organization. And I'll, I'll talk about a little bit that in a moment. And also that you brought about Ed, Ed Wilson, um, whom I knew, I wouldn't say I knew him well, but I met him several times, spent a lot of time talking with him and so on. And uh, we come from very different, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum, even though we coalesce at some level. But he was, you know, he wasn't mathematical, he wasn't a physicist and so on. And he was, as you know, obsessed with ants, but he was a great, he was a terrific science writer, among many other things. Uh, but you've reminded me of something when you put all that together in the context of the Santa Fe Institute. Um, on his, it might have been even his last visit, which is some years ago, to the Institute, um, this is quite some time ago, um, he uh, was talking to me and saying how much he enjoyed it and he thought it was fantastic and it's great to have, it's wonderful that such a place exists on the academic landscape and uh, we need more of this and so on. And then he said, you know, I really think Harvard should buy you guys because this is then we could, yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> That's very nice because I said, you know, it's always a struggle when we went because one of the things um, that's extraordinary about the Center for Institute is that it's um, it's completely independent and it, it it's self-funded. You know, we we're continuing having to raise funds and so on. I can again talk about that in a minute. So I, I guess I must have mentioned that to him, and that's why it came up. 
and I said, well, that's a great idea. It would solve a lot of our problems, but it would also be the, you know, it would kill the golden, the goose that killed the golden egg or whatever the phrase is, you know, that it would, it would kill it. I said, its independence is absolutely crucial that we're not part of another institution. And so that's a segue to, to answering your broader question about some of these um, bigger concepts. And I, and, and I think, let me put it in, first of all, a slightly historical context. The, uh, you know, among the prominent founding fathers, so to speak, um, there were these tremendous Nobel Prize winners like uh, Murray Gell-Mann and Phil Anderson and Kenneth Arrow, the great economist. Um, and um, they originally, um, the, the concept was, uh, what they were struck by, I should say, was the fact that there were many big questions that, that, uh, that seemed to be uh, being swept under the rug. I mean, the way academia was developing, getting more and more stovepiped, um, it already happened happening in the 80s, and now for sure it's happened, that, uh, you know, you might have a physics department, but in fact, it's now, um, you know, it's half a dozen really semi-autonomous sub-departments that barely speak to one another, you know, and that, and they all vie for their the resources and so on. So, you know, that's much more the, the, the tone than it was, you know, 50, 60 years ago when these things are much more coherent. And also people are encouraged to think more broadly and now quite the contrary, the reward system rewards you being an expert in some, you know, something that's really highly focused. So, you know, it's not just that we have disciplines, but, you know, you dig down deep into some small little area and that's where you become famous and you get a reward, you get tenure, you get promotion, you get an increase in salary, you get grants and so on, based on something that's generally very narrow. This was already happening in the 80s and these people were very concerned about that. And part of it was person, some personal experiences. You know, here they are, Murray Gellman, you know, one of the true, maybe the great physicist of the late part of the 20th century. And he was interested in many, many things, and in particular languages, origins of languages and so on. And of course, the physics department interprets that, that he's no longer serious. Whereas, <laughs> and, and one of his famous things was, you know, one of the things you often hear, especially in physics departments, when, when this question of moving into other areas is, is it really physics? You know, and, and Gell-Mann would always answer that, you don't simply don't ask that question. You ask, you don't ask, is it really physics? You ask, is it really science? It's science, you know, is it? So anyway, so that's sort of the atmosphere in which the Santa Fe Institute was created, that there were these big questions that uh, were somehow being um, lost. And they felt there should be one place on the academic landscape that um, where some of these big questions, and in particular, ones that cross disciplinary, traditional disciplinary boundaries were encouraged rather than discouraged. That uh, you wanted to bring the anthropologist and the archaeologist with the economist and the physicist and the biologist and, and the mathematician together in an informal setting where new ideas could develop and serendipitous interactions could take place. So that was the idea, and they founded it in the mid-80s, mid um, very informally. And um, 
uh, one of the things that came up at the beginning in thinking about how it should develop was at first the idea was, well, look, obviously what we should do is become a center in some university. And part of the University of California was the idea um, because many, some of them had come to this through uh, Los Alamos, the Los Alamos National Lab, which was then part of the University of California. And so we'll just become an autonomous, semi-autonomous institute within the university. And very quickly, they were smart guys, these. They said, you know, that that'd probably be great for the first two or three years, maybe even five years. And then gradually, it goes back to our bureaucracy thing. Entropy, I was going to say entropy we, would know, kick in. This, this, uh, <laughs> this virus will start invading us and we'll just become like everybody else. You know, we'll just become like everything else. And so much better if we can really set ourselves up as completely independent and we're trying to raise money privately because the other thing they recognize we should get money, obviously, from things like the National Science Foundation. But the same problem will occur if we're totally funded by the National Science Foundation. Then we go through all those committees and the re regression to the mean, and, uh, you know, it'll be hopeless in the end. And they sort of had this, I, I don't know, it, to some extent explicitly, but also implicit concern. This would be a serious problem and the longevity would be threatened. But at least... Not, not even necessarily the longevity of the Institute, but it would simply just uh, gradually devolve into something of which we have a hundred other examples around the world. So they decided we're eventually, we will be aggressively independent. Now, one of the things that helped with this was one of the founders was a remarkable man named George Cowan, who was a, actually a nuclear chemist at Los Alamos. But George not only was a distinguished academic, he was actually, it's unique, it sounds sort of 18th or 19th century, a distinguished banker. <laughs> he had founded a bank <laughs> that was exceedingly successful. And so he knew finance and things and so on. I, mean, I, I don't know where that actually came from. It's, it's kind of curious, but he found, <laughs> but he became well known as a banker as well as a, <laughs> as a uh, scientist. And so that meant he understood about raising money in a different way than traditional ways universities do it. And he also had sort of connections and so on. And that did help. And uh, I would say one of the first um, successes of the Institute was um, uh, looking, trying to revamp economics to bring a new light on economics. And of course, I mean, Ken Arrow, as part of it was huge because Arrow, just so your listeners know, I think eight of his students or maybe more have Nobel Prizes. He's dead now. And, uh, you know, Larry Summers is one of his students. I think Larry Summers might even be his son-in-law, actually. But, you know, so many of the major Nobel uh, economists were uh, derivative from uh, Ken. Um, so that was huge to have such people associated with it. It, it sort of gave it a certain provenance and so forth. But um, uh, so one of the first things was that, and um, Citicorp uh, got very excited about it, and they put money in, actually, and that was very important. Um, it was a good shot in the arm. But um, it started 
with this idea of asking big questions that cross disciplines and um, sort of aren't being asked. And um, just again, to give you an example, there was a program set up by Murray Gell-Mann right near the beginning called Earth 2050. And it was about sustainability of the planet, the question of climate change, the question of socioeconomic inequality and so on. And we and his idea was there should be a program that looks at all these questions about the sustainability of the planet, because we have all these signs leading to bad things. And what is incredible? Here's this man, Nobel Prize winner, famous physicist, and so on, could not get funding. The agencies would not, they all said, oh, this is, you know, this is, you know, this isn't a serious scientific project, and so on. Now, of course, 20 years later, every campus across the globe that's worth its salt has an institute of sustainability or, or you know, uh, climate change and so on. Just as now, from what we talked about earlier, everyone now is having one of artificial intelligence institute. <laughs> anyway, he could not, but it was a sign of the times and the battles that had to be formed. But that was a segue also, this idea of thinking of cross disciplines and so on, to developing what became known as the science of complexity. Because one of the things that they began to realize very early on um, was that um, all these systems have these things in common. You just gave a quote from my book that they're complex systems. Not only that, they are evolving and adapting. So what came out of that was this phrase of complex adaptive systems. And so that became sort of the, the buzzword for much of the work that was done at the Center for Institute. It invented the science of complexity, so to speak. Complexity beyond complexity, of course, was a word that was around and there was it was used technically, but it mostly referred, and a lot of the work at the Institute at the beginning was in this nature, to do with um, in mathematics and physics, nonlinear systems and so on, which is often called complex, chaos. And, and so on, um, uh, important issues. But this expanded the idea to including what I talked about at the very beginning of our conversation, the messy world around us. That can we understand the messy world around us in these sort of systemic integrated terms, understanding that they're highly complex with enormous numbers of individual actors or agents interacting. And that out of that, there are these quote, emergent behaviors that the sum of the of the of all those actors and interactions is much greater or certainly different than just summing it all up. I mean, there's a new phenomenon and that was called an emergent phenomenon. Um, and a city is a great example. A city is not the sum of all its people. It's not the sum of all its roads or buildings, um, et cetera. It's something more than that. It's something that actually is, is, you can't even quite put your finger on. It's all of those and more. And, um, and so it is with all of these systems and an ecosystem is like that. But your body, of course, is like that. And instead of that, it's not just all your cells. You can decompose it, deconstruct it into that. Um, and, and it's a complete opposition 
to um, certainly the way physics had operated since uh, for, since Newtonian times, uh, which is reductionism. That is reducing the system to its individual components and then examining the behavior of those components and then building the system back up, assuming that that was some trivial observation, those trivial exercise. Um, and that exercise, I mean, reductionism has been, uh, I mean, incredibly um, successful, my God. Um, much of physics and technology is, is derived from that philosophical viewpoint. But here was something that was sort of diametrically opposite that you need to look at the whole, the system as a whole, you need to look at it more systemically and recognize all the multiple interactions that take place between them. And, and maybe, I mean, one of the wonderful things, one of the few wonderful things that has come out of COVID and the pandemic is that it, it, we have all lived through exactly this, this emergent phenomenon. Because who would believe that some random mutation of, of a virus in Wuhan, China, would within a few months, there'd be no football, that we'd be a shortage of flour, Hertz would go bankrupt, um, and, and so on and so forth. I mean, things that are completely disconnected in our usual way of looking at it. And yet here was this little spark that occurred and within an incredibly short period of time, exponential effects, huge effects in things that we thought were disconnected. Why? Because, in fact, they are connected. Football in Spain is connected in some weird, very weak way with the production of flour in the United Kingdom. Now, 99.999% of the time, it's so weak, that connection, it's irrelevant. But the point of that is that's an extreme and slightly absurd example of the fact that when we deconstruct and we start thinking of things and we put boxes around them, and then within those boxes, we put boxes and with those boxes, boxes, when we do that, we are neglecting the potential interaction and connectivity between the, uh, some of these things. And we do that at our peril, and the history, certainly of things I'm more familiar with, like cities, are replete with terrible examples where you decide, you know, we're going to change, we're going to solve this traffic problem. We're going to put a new lane in, and we're going to do this. And indeed, the first year, it's great; everybody's happy. But within five years. We're back to gridlock or some other problem has occurred elsewhere because, of course, we forgot that, you know, the, the, there's this or whatever, you know, there's so they, we have to look at things systemically. So we have to do both is the point. It's not reductionism versus, uh, you know, systemic com complex thinking. We have to keep in mind what is appropriate for each problem. So this came out amazing. This came out of the Santa Fe Institute, this kind of thinking of emergent behavior, and, and associated with that, um, the ideas of scale and multi-scalarity, if you like, but the idea that there are many scales in a problem. Um, you know, in a city, there's obviously multiple scales, the, the scales of what happens, you know, um, immediately, the, the, the street gets swept uh, over an hour or two, but uh, people are living their lives, they're going to work, that's a day or two or a week, and then 
people, you know, there's things that buildings that have been there that are going to be built, not being built over a matter of uh, a year or so. And then there are buildings that have persisted for, in some cases, um, you know, hundreds of years. So there's all these scales all operating at the same time. And one needs to be cognizant of that and recognize their interaction and uh, interface integration and the tension between them. And that's that's very important. So this brought up all of these kinds of new ideas um, and 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 provided, if you like, a framework and a paradigm for a, a way of thinking, which led to a lot of fascinating work. I think that's been done at the institute and associated with the institute. Um, the other thing I would say, and uh, we can finish off with this, one of the things that evolved uh, with the institute was not only was it independent aggressively independent and and um, money came the the a significant amount of money came from private sources from marvelous patrons and uh, philanthropists and so on which have been terrific um it it had several other characteristics that were unique uh, almost from the beginning it had no tenure um uh, the, the, there were only term appointments and it had a distributed faculty. There was a resident faculty, there is a resident faculty, which is maybe about only about 15 people. It has also in residence, maybe a similar number of postdoctoral people, post and a small number of students, but it has maybe 100, 120 so-called external faculty from many, many of the great institutions, but many modest institutions all over the world who come, they have faculty appointments and they have men, most of the rights and obligations of a faculty member. Some hardly ever come, maybe come once a year. Some come and spend significant time, but it's a flow. We have workshops, uh, well, obviously not during the last two years, but we have, you know, of the order of two or 3,000 visitors a year, even though it's quite small, the Institute physically is small. Uh, and on site at any one time, we'd like to keep it around 35. Sometimes it goes to 75 because you want the archaeologist to be talking to the physicist. And it turns out beyond 50 people, that becomes impossible. Once you get above that number, you balkanize. Everybody breaks down and people like to form their own <laughs> little empires and their little groups and you don't and you have what you know this departmental problem so there's that and the other thing that i think may be particularly interesting to your audience is that from the beginning very near the beginning we had something that was then called the business network which is now called action for various reasons but a business network which was um, a sort of a network of uh, companies, corporations, businesses that uh, uh, joined the Institute and paid um, what actually on the scale of things is a modest fee um, and to be part of it. And we put on symposia and workshops and so on. And that has really grown in the last few years. That has really blossomed. When I was president, I promoted it very strongly because I felt this was really important because I recognized that the ideas of complexity science um, which were fascinating academically and for science also had was inevitably almost all the problems we work on interface naturally with the <laughs> the real world for want of a better phrase but with the business world uh the political world and the world out there and so we've strongly encouraged that so there is a, a very active 
business network again, which has many of the you know big companies, not the Silicon Valley types, but a lot of investment companies, many of the major ones, and um, as well as some small ones, you know, and um, it's and I think that's been um, very very important, and 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 there's an interface between them and many of the you know it's true many of the academic side do not interface much with it and vice versa many do um, and uh, i think it's one of the hallmarks of the institute and it's I, I find it quite exciting where can people find you you do a lot of keynotes all over the world and also perhaps the santa fe institute so the best way to get me is through the San, i'm at the santa fe institute i'm still there the santa fe is this extraordinary and unique town in uh, New Mexico. It's one of the, it's the oldest capital in the United States. It's one of the oldest. It, it goes back, it was founded roughly around 1600. It predates all, you know, one's image of, all, of old United States predates all the, you know, Massachusetts and Boston and Philadelphia and all the rest of it. So it's very old and it's quite unique because it has, you know, these, this interface between what is called here Anglo culture and uh, Hispanic culture that came over in the 16th century and have stayed here, and the um, Native American Indian culture. And so it's quite fascinating and it attracts all kinds of weird and wonderful people. <laughs> and the Institute is embedded in that, in an, in, and it's an appropriate place for it, actually. Beautiful. Well, I really look forward to our next uh, episode and we'll dive deeper into cities, essential listening for anybody working on smart cities or the future of cities, etc. And also business and innovation. We'll do that in a later episode. But for now, author of scale, the universal laws of life and death in organisms, cities and companies, Jeffrey West, it was an extreme pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much. Aiden, thank you very much. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And so look forward to our next conversation. That's it for a wonderful episode with Jeffrey West on part one of his brilliant book scale. I don't know how many parts we're going to do. But I'll definitely get through as much as we can. There's so much detail and so much knowledge in this book. I want to thank our sponsor Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded finance products and services empowering businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and to move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com and I'll see you next week.